Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during the pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing COVID-19 takeaways over the last year and future pandemic preparedness practices. Examining this with me are IDSA board member Dr. Helen Boucher with Tufts Medical Center and IDSA members Angela Kotkamp with New York University and Dr. Dial Hewlett with the Westchester Department of Health. Thank you, doctors, for being with me. Dr. Boucher, let's start with you. We're just over a year into the COVID-19 pandemic. What do we know now that we didn't just a year ago, and what lessons have been learned, and what needs to happen going forward, particularly as we face challenges around variants and vaccine hesitancy? We've learned the painful lesson that pandemic preparedness is important and is not something we can afford to not do again. We've learned a lot about how this virus spreads, but not everything. We still need to further understand how super spreading events occur. We've learned how to effectively produce three effective and safe vaccines. And we've now vaccinated a significant proportion of our country, but not yet enough. We've learned painful lessons about the uh, inequities in our healthcare system and COVID has really shown a light on a lot of the uh, inequities that need to be addressed in order for us to deliver the kind of healthcare that every American deserves. And we've learned that science is very important and needs to be invested in. I think those are some of my top line takeaways as we look at this last year. Thank you, Dr. Boucher, for your insights. Dr. Kotkamp, turning to you now, the COVID-19 pandemic has showcased the value of ID and the dedication of millions of healthcare professionals. It has also showcased the inequities COVID-19 has brought to light. Can you talk about what you've seen? The pandemic, as you said, has highlighted the value of idea specialists, not only for the medical community, but for the entire society. But as you said, the inequities that have been made more obvious through the pandemic are a giant that no longer can be kept dark. We're facing the failure of our systems. We're seeing the problems of our healthcare model. It is more than ever obvious how inequities in society have huge repercussions in health. For example, it is still with great sadness that I encounter these inequities in my daily activities. Out of the 10 patients that I see sick in the ICU, 80% of them are Hispanic. And to go farther on this, just on March 20th, the CDC reported that 119,000 cases of COVID were Hispanic cases versus 78,000 Black and 64,000 White. And in terms of vaccination, as of April 4th, 69% of the vaccinated people are White versus 7.8 Hispanic, 7.7 Black, and 4.1 Asian. It is just hard to see how after a full year of pandemic, we still see the same inequities. So the common denominator here is the system. And I hope we continue to take actions that address system inequities and move towards a more inclusive model where public health, social determinants of health, and preventive care are prioritized. Great points, Dr. Kotkamp. Thank you. Where do things stand right now, Dr. Hewlett, with vaccine rollout, and how can we better reach the essential workers, those in highly infected communities, and within disparate populations? 
The good news is that we have three great vaccines that are available under emergency use authorization, uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech, the Moderna uh, vaccine, and then also the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen vaccine. And we're hoping in the very near future to have a fourth. So that of course is very good news. To date, there've been about 165 million doses that have been administered. That is as of April the 1st, about 61.4 million individuals here in this country are fully vaccinated. And this represents about 18.7% of the US population. Now, if we look at this in more granular detail and looking at who's actually getting vaccinated as Dr. Kotkamp started to talk about, overall, when we look at data from the Kaiser Family Foundation across 40 different states, the vaccination rate among white persons was nearly twice as high as the rate for Hispanic persons, uh, 25% versus 13%, and about 1.7 times as high as the rate for Black persons, 25% versus 15%. Now, in cities like New York, about 43% of essential workers are actually Black or Latinx. And this includes people like our store clerks, our janitors, our transportation workers, our sanitation workers. These are all people who are serving our communities and who cannot work from home. And these are individuals who are most likely to live in the areas that have been hardest hit uh, by the pandemic. And so as we move forward, although we have made some progress, we have to work very hard to try to further reduce some of the disparities. There was an article that appeared in the Washington Post in late January. And in that article, they outlined some tactics that might actually work. And in Washington, DC, the mayor and her team actually looked at trying to allocate vaccine based upon zip code of residents. And they found that if they limited appointments on certain dates to individuals who resided in these prioritized zip codes, that this would actually reduce some of the disparities. And so these are some of the things that we can do. In our own county in Westchester County, New York, we actually have uh, adopted the model of trying to set up pop-up clinics and what the pop-up clinics actually are, are clinics or locations which we set up on a temporary basis, usually in community centers or sometimes in a public housing development, or it may be in a church. And these are areas that are more easily accessible by people who reside in these communities that have been hardest hit. By doing this, we actually were able to show that we were able to reach a larger percentage of our residents who have been hardest hit but we do have a long way to go when it comes to trying to reduce disparities with regard to the vaccine rollout. We are doing pop-up clinics here in Boston as well, in the neighborhood, meeting people where they are and are finding that it's very successful. Of course, it requires a lot of resources in terms of human resources and, and support to accomplish it. But I think this is the kind of effort that's gonna be needed so that we can increase that percent vaccination to levels that we need to, to get community immunity. It is important to really know the community and the special needs of each community. So if, for example, we're trying to target a community where primary are like speakers of other languages, then it is gonna be very important to have materials uh, that are accessible in those languages for this community in particular. Or if we're thinking about communities that have limited access to internet, 
and we are providing appointments on internet, then that should be, we should change the approach. So I think knowing the community is key. All excellent points, doctors. Thank you for your insight. Dr. Boucher, what are some of the health issues, necessities, and practices that have been neglected due to the pandemic? For example, vaccination rates, health screenings, AMR, etc. Well, Nadia, unfortunately, there have been a number of sort of unintended health consequences of the pandemic. And I think first and foremost are the things we saw early on when people were afraid to come and get the care that they needed. So we know now that in some studies, 80% of cervical cancer screenings, there was an 80% decrease in cervical cancer screening, over 20% decrease in vaccination of children, things that are vitally important. And now we're seeing sadly in the hospital, people coming to care with the consequences of not having those types of screenings and routine health that they needed. So we're seeing advanced cancer, advanced heart disease, things that we really shouldn't see uh, in the healthcare system that we have. So very, very important for everyone to work to get their patients back into appropriate care. The other consequence that we're seeing, and we still don't understand the full extent of it, is related to antimicrobial resistance. We know that early in the epidemic, there was huge overuse of antibiotics. Almost every COVID patient was treated empirically with antibiotics. And I think we've learned a great deal that that is not always necessary, but we do indeed see very serious infections, many due to resistant bacteria in patients with COVID, especially those who are in the hospital for long periods of time, especially those who are in the intensive care unit and on ventilators for long periods of time. And the problems of antibiotic resistance have not gone away and they may well have increased. And this is another pandemic that we have to really be prepared for. In fact, we have not seen an antibiotic approval since November of 2019. And this is something that should make us all be concerned. In the public health setting in which I'm currently working, We're very concerned about the high rates of syphilis and the implications that this might have on uh, possibly seeing then increases in congenital syphilis. We also have had gaps in some of our coverage of tuberculosis, and we haven't been able to do a lot of the contact tracing that we ordinarily do uh, when we diagnose tuberculosis. in a hospitalized patient or someone who's in the community. So these are all things that can have dire implications for us later on. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to covid19learningnetwork.org. Thank you for raising those points, doctors. Dr. Hewlett, I'll stick with you. How will the COVID-19 vaccine development and allocation model inform future pandemic efforts? This pandemic has essentially highlighted the importance and the essential role of basic science research. Many of us recall our shock with some of the cuts to the NIH budget and to the CDC budgets uh, that were proposed under the most recent administration. And many of the cuts that were made, although many were prevented, many of the cuts led to a situation in which we were much less prepared than we could have been. And in many other countries where they prioritized research in healthcare and research in virology, those countries seem to be much better prepared. So I think that as we move forward, it is our hope and our expectation that our political leaders will realize the importance 
of our National Institutes of Health and that the National Institutes of Health is essentially a provider for research in basic science and also in clinical science that will essentially prepare us for pandemics as we move into the future. We really need a workforce of scientists and physicians and communicators who will be ready for the next pandemic, whether it be developing the vaccine, administering it, or communicating to the public about the importance of taking it. And these are all activities that we at IDSA are fully engaged in and advocating strongly for with our government colleagues and others. Another learning point from this pandemic in terms of being prepared for the future is the importance of doing highly technological procedures, if you will, like doing genomics on our samples. And that's something that it's, uh, it's, it has been done by the UK very well. And uh, I think that they were very early in the pandemic actively sequencing their genomes and all the samples that they were obtaining. And that's how they were noticing in time the onset of these new variants. And they were ahead of the game, trying to identify them and try to trying to understand them in a way that if they were clinically significant or not. So I think investment in those highly technological procedures like sequencing is, is extremely important. This last question I'd like to pose to the entire panel. How can medical access be restructured to be more inclusive? In addition, knowing that we will face another pandemic, what efforts are now underway to shore up much needed medical resources and drive home the value and importance of ID? Dr. Kotkam, I'll start with you. Medical access could be restructured to be inclusive if, number one, it becomes independent from jobs. Health is a human right, and therefore this right should be independent of employment status. Healthcare services should be much greater invested in public health actions and prevention rather than procedure-oriented. Medical access should be independent of capacity of pay, and it should be accessible to all communities. Therefore, it should be adaptable. For example, if it should be available to every person in a reasonable distance, available in all spoken languages in a certain community, available independently of sexual orientation, religion, disability, etc. Each community has a unique need. An inclusive healthcare system should be able to understand that and address it at the community level. In other words, we should be able to make ourselves accessible to the community and not the other way around. And uh, to your last point, I think this is a terrible, unique time in a lifetime. And we as idea specialists have the honor to guide humans' efforts towards the end of this pandemic. Our value and importance in society should not be underestimated. We need support at the national, local, and institutional level to continue working on this difficult task. We may need to rethink how to quantify the value of a vital specialty like ours. And I think for that, we need really good leadership that can understand this historical moment. One of the things which I think we need to think about as we look at our own specialty infectious diseases, and also as we look at the broad breadth, if you will, of medical, uh, of medical practitioners, is that we should think of ways in which we can incentivize individuals to come into our specialty. 
And because our specialty in the past has been viewed as a very labor intensive kind of a specialty, and it tended to attract certain types of individuals. And because the compensation in our specialty was considerably lower than the compensation for those who are in the uh, procedure oriented specialties, there should be other things that we think about to incentivize individuals. One of the things which I would like to propose is that since this pandemic has essentially been analogous to a war, if you will, I think that it would certainly be appropriate for the government to consider some sort of program which would forgive loans to individuals who go into certain specialties because we have lost a lot of our colleagues along the way and there should be some sort of way for us to actually encourage people to enter our specialty in particular and also to enter the medical profession uh, in general. And so some sort of program similar to what was adopted for individuals who would be willing to serve in the military might be a consideration for people who are considering clinical and research careers uh, in infectious diseases. We've learned from the COVID epidemic that there will be more pandemics, and we know at least one is coming, and that's the uh, pandemic of antimicrobial resistance. And we know that if we do nothing by the year 2050, AMR will be the number one cause of death at a cost of $100 trillion, uh, which is not, not tenable for our world. So that the need for us in infectious diseases to lean in and really be part of the future and be the group who influences the future and remembering that AMR impacts almost every aspect of healthcare, cancer, chemotherapy, surgery, all these things are possible only with antibiotic support and the expertise that we bring is gonna help address uh, this pandemic as well as many more. And so I think there's a great opportunity for us now to take the helm and lead. Uh, and whether it's with things like governmental support for loan forgiveness or other uh, endeavors to support junior scientists and clinicians in the field, people who work at CDC and public health departments uh, or work in companies developing new antibiotics or diagnostic tests. These are all the work uh, that we need to do. And I think the time is now. I'm very much excited about that aspect of the future in our post-COVID world. Distinction, excellence, service. Set yourself apart today. Become a fellow of IDSA. Visit idsociety.org slash to apply by May 31st. Doctors, any final points? The battle is not yet over. We are still seeing surges in various parts of the country. And I think that most of us are having nightmares about what is likely to occur during the coming week as many people are returning from their spring holidays. And so we cannot let our guard down. We have to continue to exercise all of the precautions such as the wearing of masks and the spatial or social distancing and the avoidance of large gatherings of people who we don't know. I think that these are things that we still have to stress because if we don't, we are going to lose ground and we may find ourselves at the mercy of the variants, which may, as Dr. Boucher has mentioned, be resistant to some of the current vaccines that we now have. And I'll just add, not to underestimate our role as communicators and leaders in our community, whether that be at the hospital or office where you work, or in your community of your town, your place of worship, other places where you engage. One of the roles that we as infectious disease physicians can play is to lead our 
colleagues and our fellow citizens in doing the right thing and, and telling the truth about the science and what we know and don't know as we go through this and in future epidemics. We have a lot of work still ahead. We need to uh, still communicate with our communities to try to make more allies in the community and educating them in different languages, in different settings, so we can reach uh, to all the communities that we intend. So we still have a lot of work, but I think we have been doing a really amazing job in delivering information. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Hewlett, Cotcamp, and Boucher for their participation and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's real-time learning network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Join me next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.